Good morning. Uh, I see a number of people still signing in. We had a little technical difficulty this morning. Uh, Dr. Schreiber, and uh, welcome to the COVID-19 Ask the Experts update. Uh, as an announcement, our next Ask the Experts will be on the 18th of February, and Dr. El-Shabib and our Division of Cardiology will be updating you on COVID at that time, February 18th. Um, today, we have a lot to cover. Uh, there's a lot going on. We have the whole session, so we have plenty of time for questions, uh, and I look forward uh, to them. Dr. Salazar will be joining us for the question and answer period, uh, and we'll moderate that. So let's get moving. Um, the first slide, please. Um, keep going. And uh, here we are um, into February. That was the wrong date, actually, on that slide. Uh, here we are. Um, in February, third year of the pandemic. And you can see on this slide, our Omicron resurgence is waning in the Northeast. It's fading, which is great news, and, and a few other parts of the country as well. And um, I think uh, things are improving. I'm gonna show you those numbers in our region, but you'll notice that there are pockets of the, a lot of the United States where actually the Omicron surge has not peaked yet. Next. And here's where we are overall in the United States. Not a lot of these declines are being driven by the Northeast declining, but you can see we're almost at 800,000 new cases a day, and that's not even including the home tests. And we're about 50% less than that. It's a huge improvement over just a couple of weeks. So it's great news. And more importantly, and I, I've mentioned before, I think following new cases, is probably not gonna be where we need to go in the future. I think following hospitalizations is a much better indicator of who's getting seriously ill. And you'll see that they're declining as well. Hospitalizations due to COVID are going down um, significantly. This is great news, but a lot of it's driven by us in the Northeast. And again, I, I worry that we're gonna see some rockiness in these curves as other parts of the US peak out and haven't yet. Next. Now, um, is Omicron less lethal or not? Um, it, it probably is, but the enormous numbers of new cases and people ending up in the hospital and in that witch's brew, um, unimmunized and underimmunized, our deaths have gone up quite a bit. And you'll see um, they tend to lag hospitalizations. And this has been every resurgence in, the, in this pandemic, it's been the same thing about four or five weeks after the peak deaths increase because those people ended up in the ICU and take time to die, unfortunately. So uh, the deaths rates have gone up about 2,500 people a day in the United States have died from COVID related illness. It's quite remarkable. And, um, you know, this is not normal as much as people want to say, let's get back to normal. Um, this is not normal. And it's something we're going to need to address to get to normalcy, to drive that death rate down to its very lowest point, and that's going to require a much better immunization program than we have currently. Next. And if you look at vaccination across the United States, um, it's just so obvious of the discrepancies. You look at the Northeast, and we've weathered the Omicron surge, which was really tough, fairly well. If you look at, I'm going to show you specifics on deaths and hospitalizations, our ICUs never maxed out. We had capacity. The health system was able to manage this uh, and our death rate remained low. 
So um, I think the fully vaccinated areas of the United States are going to weather, have weathered this variant well. Unfortunately, as you look, particularly in the Southeast, uh, there's tremendous under immunization. And the worry is that Omicron will be prolonged and more damaging in those areas. And so although we're past the peak, it's not clear to me different parts of the country are going to pass it the way we did, uh, relatively unscathed. Next. And uh, if, you, if you look at vaccinations, I really want to focus on, we already know that we've probably not done as well as we could have on fully vaccinated, which is uh, defined as two doses, okay? And that's the curve on the left by the end of January. But more importantly, because I've shown you several times over the last few weeks um, that boosters are really critical to Omicron, that two doses alone, particularly in high risk or elderly, um, is not protective as, as it could be uh, from hospitalization and death. And boosters are very important and they really work. You've seen that huge jump in antibodies you get either if you've had the disease and get a booster or if you've if you've had three shots, a huge bump in neutralizing antibodies. And you can see the United States on the right um, lags all of the developed world in our share of population who've gotten the booster dose. And this is really a problem because um, as you'll see later, there's another variant coming through. It seems to respond pretty well to three doses. And um, we're going to continue to have waves of disease if we don't uh, improve um, booster doses. And uh, if we do, and then enough people get Omicron, we'll reach herd immunity, as I think we've done in the Northeast and move to an endemic place. But um, this is a problem and it's difficult. We, uh, we had a meeting with the Connecticut Hospital Association yesterday and all of the hospitals were saying that their booster clinics are relatively unattended, that people just aren't doing it and don't feel a sense of urgency to do it. So we remain um, under-boosted. Now that Northeast and Connecticut, it's less of a problem. Uh, boosters are reasonably, um, uh, the numbers are reasonably high, but they're not nearly uh, where they should be. I think it's like 45%, something like that. So we have work to do in the US to move this to an endemic disease. Next. Now, um, Connecticut uh, shows what I showed you um, really nationally. It's, it's leading the charge in decreases of new cases. And you can see by late January and this early the end of January here, our new cases had just dropped like a rock. This has been a very short surge um, and less damaging than it would have been because of our immunization rates. And so uh, we're, we're really looking towards a very nice spring if we can get there and unpredictable things don't happen could be a good spring for us. Um, whereas it warms up and the community spread is much lower, we move to a more normal place. Next. However, you know, it's still not where it was back in the summer where it was pretty slow. This is yesterday's and it's bouncing around between seven and 8% test positivity, but it's much less than 25%, which it was two, three weeks ago. So I anticipate this map's gonna fade from the red over the next few weeks. Um, and we are moving to the right place, although you wouldn't know it because we still have a lot of community spread and it's, it's probably not time to throw in the towel uh, yet. So, but the trend is aggressively in the right direction. It's a very optimistic thing to see. And I do think we're gonna have a nice spring. Next. Now, here's what I mentioned, the challenges, you know, deaths lag uh, the new cases and hospitalizations. And, you can see here the Connecticut deaths have increased. It's about 40 a day, 30 a day. These are people who were sick a few weeks ago and, and are just not recovering. And so 
you know, this is a serious illness still. And I'm going to show you some, again, some media things where I, I think people wrapping their arms around that this is just sort of not a cold. Uh, you know, it's, it's challenging because I guess unless the death that directly affects you and your family, people are having trouble with this. But we're unfortunately uh, losing a number of, of people who have families and loved ones in Connecticut every day. I do anticipate, given that our, I'll show you the hospitalizations in a sec, and given that our numbers of cases have gone down, our death rate's going to go down. And I, I do believe when you see July of last year, I think we're going to sort of hit that in the spring. Um, but, uh, you know, again, we have a rough few weeks to go through to get down there. Next. Now, this is very interesting data. Um, this is from Connecticut DPH. And I wanted to show you that our current resurgence deaths differs from what we saw in the earlier areas of the pandemic. So go back to 2020, you can see the green there. Those are deaths that were occurring in nursing homes and assisted living. And we remember that, right? It would wipe out a whole nursing home. And it was about half the COVID deaths. And we've substantially fixed that problem with immunization and with very careful public health measures in nursing homes now, where you know they're very careful in testing and all of the things they do. You'll see that currently, um, that is not where our deaths are coming from. Our deaths are, are in under-immunized, unimmunized, and members of the general public, um, including elderly, uh, but less so in these institutional settings and nursing homes. So I think there's a lot of public health information that can be gathered from this. And one of my disappointments is I, I really think that uh, the federal agencies should be more proactive as they design targeted public health measures as we move to an endemic model that will keep it that way. And we've not heard that yet. We're still sort of four or five, six weeks behind and really directing where public health measures will be effective. And you can see, if you look at this, you know that we're gonna to need to double down on our assisted living uh, Congress setting um, measures because they work. We're just not seeing the deaths there anymore. And so I think there's a lot of great information that really we should be distilling into the next generation of public health advice as we move out of the pandemic to more endemic place. And, and we're not seeing that yet. And, um, and I, I, again, I think it's one of my disappointments um, in, in uh, the government uh, guidance right now. Next. Um, data that I, I've shown every time, but I update it. Um, once again, and, and again, I, it seems like some of the media has trouble just getting their arms around this, but the reality is that full immunization um, it reduces your risk of death from COVID by you know, 13 times, which is a log. Uh, it's quite remarkable. The vaccines are very effective at preventing death from COVID. And um, I, it's the best you can do is just keep showing these data and, and, um, uh, and, and hoping that at some point enough people realize that it's just not worth it to take the risk of dying and they just get immunized. So I do think these data are holding up. It's not changed much um, over the last weeks of the Omicron resurgence. And uh, these are data from Connecticut DPH. So these are Connecticut specific data. Next. Now here's the hospitalizations. And I think um, this is also great news. Uh, you'll see that um, we've gone down below a thousand COVID patients hospitalized in the state. It was almost twice that, it was twice that. And um, we're also seeing the uh, numbers not fully vaccinated 
go down. And part of that is um, we've not been able to specifically in every case show that they're COVID related uh, admission or are they admitting for acute gallbladder and happen to be COVID positive. So that's most of them are COVID admissions and ill from COVID, but not all. And so we have to take the numbers of um, not fully vaccinated and COVID specific hospitalizations uh, a little bit with a grain of salt until we can specifically grind down on every one of those admissions. And we have the same problem in Connecticut Children's. We, you know, about half the kids being admitted with COVID actually uh, had other illnesses and were COVID positive as opposed to having COVID pneumonia in the ICU. So we had to tease that out and it was about half and that varies by week. So again, um, but the good news here is that hospitalizations with COVID are going down dramatically in the state, reflecting the decrease in community spread and our effectiveness in immunization, keeping people out of the hospital. Next. Um, now, what about, is, I've had a lot of questions. Well, you know, I was infected at the beginning of December, so I'm immune to Omicron, right? And these are great data and it's, it lags, unfortunately. This is the best DPH has, right now. it's from Connecticut showing how Omicron has become virtually 100% of all isolates by January 9th, and it's probably more than, it's probably 100% now. But you'll notice if you were infected in mid-December, you had a pretty much a 50-50 chance of having Delta or Omicron. And infection with Delta is probably not particularly protective against getting reinfected from Omicron. So well, we're telling people, you know, if you're infected mid-December um, and you're thinking you're protected for 90 days, probably not correct. And you want to get your booster and immunization and all of that. So this is an important guide. And I think you can almost date it. You know, you'd probably say by Christmas, if you got infected, it's Omicron and you've got your 90 day period where you're, you're probably immune to Omicron. But prior to that, you had a pretty good chance of having Delta. And I'm not sure the 90 day immunity will hold up. So, um, you know, this is on the DPH website. It's very useful information and it's helped guide our policy at Connecticut Children's about people coming in with that history of when we assume that they're still immune or when we worry that they could have had Delta and get reinfected with Omicron and we'll test them. So this is an, a useful guide as you look at history of people who've had previous infection. Next. Now, look, the giant behemoth to the north um, uh, has similar data to Connecticut. You'll see in the middle there are the numbers of new cases, uh, I mean, number of deaths, by, I'm sorry, um, actually is starting to go down in Massachusetts. It had peaked out literally four or five days ago and is going down now. And I hope to see the same thing in Connecticut. So that's good news. And you'll notice um, one thing I want to show you, if you look at in the, my top right, the graphs, their average ages of people who tested positive for and died of COVID-19. And you'll see the A green is the age of the infected. And that's young people, 34. But the age of those who tested positive and died from COVID is mid, that age is 76. So again, guiding public health policy moving forward. If you know that 76 is still the average age of deaths, but a 30-year-old is unlikely to die who's immunized. You can begin to guide public health measures based on that. And so you're going to tell 75-year-olds, even if you're immunized and boosted, you probably might want to wear a mask in public areas. And whereas a 34-year-old, probably not. And so I think, again, we can get more specific as we move to an endemic place 
that will take away some of this abrasive conflict and focus on those who are at risk. And if enough people are immunized, we have herd immunity and low community spread, we're gonna do okay. But here you're seeing in Massachusetts, the average age of those who died in December, I don't have January data, is in the mid 70s. So we don't have full Omicron data yet for Massachusetts, but my suspicion is it's gonna be very similar. Next. And then the other thing I wanted to show you in Massachusetts, because there's so, you know, it's twice the population of Connecticut. So their community spread is very relevant to us. You'll see that this is number of patients in the hospital and it's dramatically declining in Massachusetts as well. So all good news, our region is really moving out of Omicron and, and we're in moving into a new stage of endemicity uh, that's different than some other parts of the country right now. We're sort of ahead some other parts of the country. Good news. Next. Um, now, uh, other parts of the country, I want to show you this. So I drilled down on Alabama, and I want to show you some interesting data, which worries me for, for them down there. So if you look at, um, they're, they're around 13% test positivity, but that's like old already. I couldn't get this week's number um, from their website. I don't know where it is, but, and only 49% of the population has had two doses of vaccine. That's the definition of fully vaccinated there. So you know, it's a very under immunized population. Next. And so look what's happening. So this is hospitalizations. And um, you'll see that ICU beds are 95% occupied in Alabama right now. And about half of that is COVID. And two weeks ago, it was 93%. So they're not budging. I mean, they're not going down the way we are. This ours within a week, this dropped, you know, began to, in a couple of weeks, began to drop off. So Alabama's at their peak, or maybe a little below their peak, and you worry, you know, they're going to exceed their ICU capacity there. And so, you know, and if it, if I don't see the data on their website, but at least in Connecticut, uh, 60, 70% uh, during the peak of those in the hospital with COVID were under immunized or unimmunized. So you can imagine with a 50% unimmunized population that this could be a, a prolonged <clears throat> surge in Alabama as opposed to what we saw here. So, it worries me and you can see the hospitalizations are stagnant right now over a few weeks. We did not see that here. Next. <clears throat> now we're getting a lot of good new information um, about the immunology of infection with SARS-CoV-2. And you remember the old Epstein-Barr virus curves, Ebna and all that. We sort of have that with COVID now. And I'll, I'll walk through this with you because I think it's a distillation of information we've gathered over the last two years that's really useful. You'll see you get onset of symptoms and viral antigen, those antigen tests, like day three or four are gonna be pretty good because you have a lot of antigen if you're sick, if you're asymptomatic, less. And you'll notice that uh, that antigen test drops off pretty quickly. So they're, they're very insensitive later on, you know, maybe day seven, they're not gonna be as sensitive. You'll notice that PCR is highly sensitive. Um, however, long after you're infectious, you're no longer infectious, you still can have a positive RT-PCR down to 21 to 28 days. So that's where you get into that gray zone of somebody who's better, but they still have PCR in 21 days. They're probably not infectious and you don't worry about it. And so, and then antibodies kick in around day 14, IgM day seven, as it normally does for earlier for most infections, but you don't really get good neutralizing antibody titers for a couple of weeks, three weeks. And you can see Again, that also reflects the duration that we do between our, our first and second dose of the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. And so, you know, you really need to wait a few weeks to get that 
to see that IgG go up. So uh, I think this is very useful. It was in New England Journal, and I, I'm sure this will become a textbook kind of uh, picture that we'll see and teach uh, medical students and residents the natural immunologic history of SARS-CoV-2. But we're learning a lot. And I think, again, you can look at this graph and you can figure out on testing and stuff where for someone's likely to still be infectious or not. Now, you'll notice um, also culturable virus, um, you know, and you can see that that really is until, you know, day 14, but it's very low day 14. You can see on day five that many people still have culturable virus. And so that's why you know, we've really stuck to day seven at CCMC of pulling people back in unless we have a staffing emergency. Day seven, uh, it's really unlikely that you're still um, infectious. It's not zero, but it's much less likely than day five. So again, we, we were a little uncomfortable with the CDC recommendation for that. And, and you can see the data would suggest that we're probably correct in being a little cautious about that. <clears throat> Next, please. Now, um, boosters, I've, I've hammered this home, but uh, every week there's another paper showing their effectiveness. In this paper, which came out in late January from uh, MMWR CDC, they looked at emergency department and urgent care encounters and hospitalizations of adults during Delta and Omicron until January of this year. Um, next. And you can see um, that uh, what they found was that if you had your booster shot, <clears throat> within a certain time period, you are highly unlikely to show up in the ED with COVID. So um, it works. I mean, it kept people out of urgent care. Uh, was 94%, 82% effective in keeping uh, you out of urgent care and emergency department and, and also from hospitalization. So again, data reaffirming the importance of the booster and how effective it is in keeping you from getting sick enough to show up at the ED. Uh, which, of course, is the entrance to getting admitted to the hospital. So, again, more data. It's, it's very solid, uh, showing that third dose is highly effective. Next. Remdesivir. Um, again, data coming out, uh, and the FDA has changed what you're allowed to do. Unfortunately, it's IV, which has made it complicated. But if you give remdesivir early in the illness, um, before someone gets sick, it's highly effective at hospitalizations or death. You can see placebo is the top where it's a serious infection and remdesivir greatly reduces the patients who got remdesivir greatly reduced likelihood of hospitalization or death. And, uh, and so remdesivir early on works. Unfortunately, logistically it's IV over a few days and it's made it difficult to use it as an ambulatory patient unless you go to an infusion center. And so we're gonna to need to figure that out a little bit better. But again, our armamentarium in preventing serious illness from COVID is improving and the data is solid. And so we'll have an yet another um, with the Pfizer oral drug and with remdesivir, we'll have uh, more tools in our toolbox to prevent serious infection as we move to more endemic place. Next. Now, myocarditis, and I, I again, I think this is going to come up for us out in the field, as it were, um, as we, as I'll mention, uh, pediatric immunization, my, my belief is probably late February, early March, there'll be approval of Pfizer for six months to four years. And this is going to come up. You know, what about myocarditis? So here's the numbers from the VAERS reporting program, which I think are pretty accurate. And we need to be honest. So here it is. So if you look at the um, Pfizer vaccine, 
There are 138 cases of myocarditis uh, after the first dose in 114 million first doses. Okay, it's pretty low incidence. And 888 cases after 95 million second vaccine doses. And you can do the numbers. Um, it's minuscule, but not zero. Um, now, the numbers of myocarditis from actual disease is much higher than this. And it'd be nice to have a comparison graph to show that, but this paper doesn't have that. Now, for Moderna, um, and that's B, uh, there were 116 cases of myocarditis after the first dose in 78 million vaccinations and 311 after 66 million second vaccine doses, and, and probably a little bit less. Also, um, I didn't show there's a, a slide on this, I didn't want to put too much data in here, but it, this is primarily in teenage males, not all, but mostly in teenage males. So these are the data um, and uh, they came from JAMA. And again, uh, it's almost worth showing it to people. Hey, this is the, you know, after 95 million doses, about 800 kids. And, and those children recovered. It was mild illness and they recovered. So now in the FDA data, for children, younger children down to five, there were zero myocarditis cases in the data presented to the FDA, but we have to watch the VAERS. We'll have to look at reports and we'll get more data over the coming months. This reporting is working well. And, but at the moment, the younger kids don't seem to be getting myocarditis. And so uh, it seems to be mostly teenagers. So again, important data for us as providers and um, healthcare advocates and parents and anyone out there uh, these are the actual data. I believe these to be correct. And, and I think you can do a risk benefit analysis pretty easily in your head uh, with this and, and make some decisions for your family and children. Next. Now, um, what about um, Omicron being less virulent? Like what are the data on this? Well, this is a really interesting paper. It just came out in Nature uh, the 1st of February and they find that Omicron actually in the test tube seems to be less virulent. So these are human embryonic kidney cells. And in order for Omicron to invade, they have to fuse with the cell. And the green is Omicron, and they're less able to fuse with the cells. They're just, their spike protein isn't as good at doing that. It doesn't get cleaved properly um, to get into the cell. Um, and then I didn't show the graph, but they all, hamsters, remember hamsters get COVID and they can transmit it to you and us to them. Kind of sad, but um, hamsters are good now a good animal model, and they show that Omicron is not as good at infecting hamsters as the Delta and the older strains. So at least in animal models and in the test tube, it looks like Omicron is less virulent than Delta and previous strains, which I think is good news, and it's panning out in our clinical, our clinical realm as well. Next. Now, what about BA2? Okay, that's uh, the new subvariant of Omicron. Omicron is now called BA1. So BA2 was first identified in India and South Africa like a month ago, and it's emerged uh, from BA1, which is the original Omicron. And Denmark now has lots of BA2. It's taking over Denmark. And at least early observations are not seeing any dramatic differences in severity of disease. Uh, but there are differences in the mutations. They share 32 of the mutations, but there are 28 other mutations they don't share. And um, so it's concerning. And, you know, the concern, of course, is going to be as we don't get this under community spread, under control across the world, there are going to be more and more variants coming out. So 
I think it, 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 we need to redouble our efforts to get immunizations out to the rest of the world and into our own country and settle this down before we get more variants. Um, now, uh, in as of January 24th, BA2 was the dominant strain in India, Denmark, and Sweden. So we're going to find out. It's already in the United States. Um, and it's gonna be here. Now, um, there are some early, early data showing that it's really just as, you're just as protected against BA2 as BA1 Omicron, next slide. And again, really good early data. Um, I'm just gonna show you, this is from the UK, and they're looking at people who got infected with now with BA2, which they're tracking. And um, you'll see after two doses, which is the top line, uh, as we already know, it's not particularly good against protection from Omicron, against symptomatic disease, and BA2 equally mediocre, two doses. But you'll see after three doses, and then you wait a couple weeks, um, both are reasonably effective against any symptomatic disease with BA2, 70% and 63% with the original Omicron. So it looks like um, boosters are working just as well with BA2 as they do with the original Omicron. So again, the vaccines work, the booster dose is critical for Omicron and uh, BA2 doesn't seem like it's gonna be a problem in terms of vaccine ability to prevent serious infection. Early data from the UK, this may change, but I wanted you to see this first because I, I think it, may, it will make you relax a bit that you know we're not gonna head into another surge right now from BA2, I don't think so. Next. Now, what's going out there in the world of media? I mean, you know, crazy stuff. I wanted to share this one with you. So um, this article, I didn't, I didn't print it. You should go, you know, hunt it down in Newsmax. And basically they say, if you go into a place and you wear a mask and you agree to all these public health measures, then you've got some problem in your worship of government control. It's the craziest article I've ever read. But so basically if you adhere to public health measures, there's something wrong with you because you must be some religious zealot in believing that the government's right. So, I mean, you know, all I can say is I, I, I saw COVID patients three weeks ago and I had my N95 on, I didn't get sick. So if you're saying I have religious attachment to my N95, I would say, yes, it works. It keeps everyone from getting sick. And so I, again, but this people are reading this stuff and um, it, it's nuts. Next. Now, this one um, is fascinating. So read the director of Vaccine Safety Research Foundation says that ran, no randomized proof masks work against COVID-19. Okay, wow, it's a research foundation. It must be, you know, this must be true. Well, I did some drilling on this. What is this? Well, the guy who wrote this article, Steve, executive director's name is Steve Kirsch, and he actually is a Silicon Valley, you know, millionaire who invented the optical mouse. Now, he created the COVID Early Treatment Foundation and, and um, went down this rabbit hole. He had a bunch of great scientists and he really was pushing hydroxychloroquine. It didn't work. And the scientists said, like, in our studies, it's not working. So he fired them all and, um, and then, you know, went down the rabbit hole and he founded a new uh, vaccine safety research foundation which is an anti-vaccine foundation. And Richard Malone is the head advisor. You may remember Richard Malone is the anti-vaxxer out there who actually got into a patent fight over the mRNA vaccines. So he's got an ax to grind. So, so um, it, it, it's nuts now. And now technically, I think this may be correct. So, so we haven't taken 
12 nurses right now today and say, okay, you're not going to wear an N95 and then 12 will wear an N95. You all go into that COVID patient and let's see who gets COVID because you know exactly what's going to happen. It's not ethical. You couldn't do it because all the unmasked people will get COVID. So, I mean, it's way you twist something. Um, and then you, you'd say, well, you know, we don't transmit COVID in the hospital because we're all wearing PPE. We're not getting it. And those, when you do get it, is out in the community when you're eating dinner somewhere and you took your mask off. So, I mean, there's so much data showing that masks work, yet here we are still telling everyone that they don't work. And, you know, it's kind of like you just throw your hands up because I'm not going to stop wearing my N95 because <laughs> Steve Kerr says I don't need to. I mean, I'd have to be crazy. So, again, I, as you drill down on this and you tease it out, you realize that, that the headline's sort of correct, but it's just not based on any scientific foundation. And uh, so I wanted to show you this one. People are reading this. You know, some of your patients are reading this. Next. Now, here's a great one. It's time to fire the generals in charge of a losing COVID war. Well, I think we're winning in New England right now with, you know, strong public health measures uh, that we've attenuated when we need to. We back off. We've been very careful to try to help people so we don't do too much. And, and, uh, and then a lot of immunization. And we're already through Omicron here. So I don't know if I'd want to fire our generals right now. I think they've done a pretty good job. But this is, again, to create distrust in that anyone out there who's doing public health, you know, we've lost the war and it's your fault. And, and it, it's, it's kind of sad, actually. Next. Now, I think this one is, is really important because this paper you may see in the news today about the Hopkins study and lockdowns don't work. And um, so Newsmax says lockdown reduced COVID mortality only 0.2%, Johns Hopkins analysis. Now, if you actually look at the paper, that's factually correct. But then I actually pulled the paper and you can do it too, it's online. And it's from the department, it's from, from an economics department at Hopkins. It's not public health at all. And it's a meta-analysis. They pulled every study they could find and looking at death rates and then seeing whether there was a lockdown. The problem is it was really hard to define lockdown. So in some, they defined it as uh, you're quarantined for five days, some was 10 days, some the restaurants were closed, some this and that. And you'll see when they pull all the meta-analysis papers, like a lot of papers show a tremendous drop in mortality in lockdown. You can look at China, for example, which has been in lockdown and they've had virtually no deaths from COVID, very, very few. And, and so I, I think the reality is lockdowns, you know, work, but they've mixed all these definitions when you look at the paper. And, and the other point that they make in the paper, which is critical, is that, and this is where I think um, maybe they didn't read the paper carefully, that changes in voluntary behavior were just as important. And that's wearing a mask and getting a shot. So that reduced the death rate. So ironically, um, if you really read the paper carefully, you'll see that if people would do the public health measures, wear a mask, get a shot, it's just as, as effective as a lockdown. And I think, again, you can guide public health policy that way, but not if you just do this sort of lockdowns are bad and nothing works because it's not correct. So, again, this paper's out there. It's all over the media today. It's worth taking a look at it so we understand when some, a patient asks us, oh, you know, this doesn't work. And I'm not in favor of lockdowns because I think we can be much more specific now. We have a lot more information than we had in the pre-vaccine era. But um, again, I think this is what's out there. It's taking a paper and twisting it uh, for an ideological or political gain. And unfortunately, 
it's not science and the science you got to look at this paper it's, it's got issues so i wanted to show that to you because i think many of you may hear about it today next now the last one i wanted to talk about so this is the wall street journal yesterday and an editorial and they say end the COVID panic now biden should declare the pandemic is over so americans can return to normal lives hey i'm good you know let's declare it today i'm going to declare it's over but the reality is you saw the ICU beds in Alabama. I mean, it's 98% capacity, half from COVID. So it's not over. And we're just going to have to accept reality and have targeted measures to get us to an endemic place because we're not there yet. And so, again, if the editorial had said, you know, Biden should make sure everyone gets vaccinated as best he can and uh, target public health measures and get rid of, you know, these global things, it would have been more uh, refined editorial, but I mean, you know, Joe should just declare the virus is done, but it's not. It's the virus. It's not a political issue. And the numbers will show us that we still have a ways to go. New England being close to being in an endemic place now. So again, uh, unfortunately, um, it, whether it's a lack of understanding, uh, if we could just declare it over today and we just stop everything, I think we're going to have a lot of ICU beds filled. We're going to have to figure out booster doses. And when they make the comment in this editorial is, well, let's get back to you know, everybody could just take a pill. If you get sick with COVID, you'll just take the Pfizer pill and stay home from work for a couple of days and go to work. Well, that's a great idea, except you can't get the Pfizer drug because we can't manufacture it enough. And, and so there's just so many issues. Maybe we will get there. I hope we do, where we have lots of effective therapies. And reality is we have it at home and we can take um, Pfizer or other remdesivir or whatever it is and prevent us from getting very sick and we just move on. I think we will get there, but we're not there today. And, and again, um, end the COVID panic. Joe Biden should declare the pandemic is over today. Well, a great idea. Next. So where are we at? And, um, you know, we're in a much better place today um, in New England than we were even two weeks ago. This Omicron resurgence is still in progress in the world, but it's falling off rapidly um, in many countries. <clears throat> Our community spread in Connecticut's down below 10% now. It's around 7-8%. Uh, ditto in Massachusetts, we're over the peak and the numbers of new infections are in decline. Hospitalizations, more importantly, I, I wonder if we, the numbers of new infections, I don't even think are accurate anymore because of all the rapid tests, but the hospitalizations are going down fast. And I think to me, that's a, a critical measure, uh, very important. Connecticut data show, again, 50% of our hospitalization with COVID are unimmunized or not completely immunized. And, and uh, you know, again, this this really represents a problem. You saw the booster dose lag that we have, and we have a booster dose lag in Connecticut too. We need to get those boosters in. Connecticut data show um, uh, our dramatically increased death rate in unimmunized, 13 times those who are immunized. And that I don't even think that includes booster data, by the way. That's just two doses or no doses. So again, um, an enormous difference. It's just so crystal clear. We'll prevent death with the vaccines. The COVID deaths are concentrated in over 70 age group, often in under immunized, but not always. And so again, as we target our public health measures, we need to understand how we're gonna do that in that age group in a way that allows them to participate in society, but safely because immunization, even in that age group may not be as effective as it will be in younger people. And so this should guide our targeted public health responses that we move to an endemic environment we need to stay ahead of this because people are fed up and, and really want you know, to know what to do, but in a focused way. I think we're getting enough data to do that, but we actually have to do it. BAT, BA2, sorry, is out there. 
it actually is probably a little more infectious than the current Omicron, but at the moment, early data suggests the vaccines, particularly remember the booster dose vaccine works and uh, we'll have to wait and see as it spreads. Uh, but right now it doesn't seem to be more virulent. And then again, the alternative reality uh, media is still out there. Uh, masks don't work. It uh, goes on and on. Immunizations don't work. And again, if we could focus on targeted public health measures, which are going to include immunization and boosters, we really could get the whole country to a more endemic place. And, we're, and we are not there yet, unfortunately, but I think we will get there. So I want to stop. Uh, I know there are going to be plenty of questions today. Um, and uh, We'll open it up uh, to the audience to see what you have to say and what questions uh, you may have today. Thank you, John. Uh, good morning, everyone. I, I had to do something else before this morning, so uh, John opened. Uh, great to uh, listen to wonderful information, as always, John. Really appreciate it. We do have a, a number of questions that have come through. Uh, the first one is, how would we know we're in, the, in an endemic situation versus a pandemic? Well, you know, there's no specific number or formula, but I would say endemicity would be when we have low community spread and our hospitalizations and death rates are at a stable, they're not going to be zero, but they're at a stable low level. We're heading there. So again, we have a highly immunized population. We need to get more boosters out there in Connecticut um, and it's fallen off. Hospitalizations are coming down. And when the strain on the health system is relatively low, it might be continuous, but low, I think we'll be moving to a more endemic place. The, the, the wild card is going to be whether we can stay ahead of variants. And this is why I think we'll probably move to an annual immunization model where, much like influenza, they'll survey the world for variants out there and there'll be an annual booster to include many of those variants. And, and that may prevent these resurgences. Uh, from variants in the coming in the coming years, and I, I really think we will move there. And the mRNA technology really lends itself to rather quick change based on what variants are out there. So I'm quite optimistic. But to me, that's where an endemic phase will be: low-level hospitalizations, the death rates are, are very low. We were sort of there a few months ago, but we have to keep it there, and that's going to require vigilance. I mean, you can't just stop and say, "Declare success." This is not that pathogen that you can do that with. This is going to be around. So success is going to mean let's focus and continue a highly immunized population. Let's get our kids immunized from spreading it around and let's get rid of Missy and immunize kids. We don't see that problem anymore. And I really do believe we're going to move to a low level community spread infection rate. Um, and let's target when we figure out who gets sick, who's likely to die, who's likely to end up in the ICU. Let's figure out targeted public health measures for those individuals. As an example, so, you know, I'm high risk by age and I will say as this moves out of this, probably when I go to the big Y, I'll continue to wear a mask because, you know, I'm boosted, but you don't really know. And if you look at the death, some of those people were boosted in the mid 70s who got very sick. And so we're not measuring antibody titers and everybody. So I think there are advice we can give that will be measured and specific that may get us to a much more normal place in the coming months. So I'm quite optimistic. But it's going to require vigilance. And, and as I showed you in that Wall Street Journal editorial, that's really not the right approach. Oh, we're done. You know, it's not. We're going to actually have to have a plan. And uh, it could be uh, pushing those drugs out so everyone has access to them. And if you're COVID positive, let's get that um, uh, Pfizer uh, oral drug into you. Um, and, you know, there, there are lots of things that we're going to need to do, but they actually have to be set up and operationalized. 
Uh, and we're not quite there yet, but we're getting there. So I'm answering your question. I don't have a specific number to give you, but you can see as community spread drops and the hospitalizations drop and the death rate drops, we're moving to a more endemic place. Thanks, John. Um, the next question is, uh, it, it, COVID rates are declining in nursing homes. Are we seeing the same decline rate for incarcerated individuals? And that's that's a very specific question. I think, I think that's an excellent question. I did not see those data. They may very well be on the uh, DPH websites. I know Massachusetts showed them at one point. I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a critical uh, question because anytime you have an enclosed institution, uh, you know whether it's a VA a home or whether it's in a, in, a, in a jail, you're going to have a risk of spread. So it's a great question. I'll we'll push that out there for our next talk in two weeks and show you those data. I don't I don't know what they are though. It's a good question. Yeah, John. The the what what I found is that um, there's actually a, a a website called COVIDPrisonProject.com. Believe it or not, uh, that has uh, of the incarcerated individuals for the U.S. 7 million were tested. That tells you that a lot of people in, in jails incarcerated positive 554,000. And of those 2,807 have died. Uh, but the other one is that the staff that were positive about 186,000 and 265 deaths from staff in, in, in prisons. Uh, that, uh, so it, it has been a, a major problem in Connecticut, uh, 7,000 842 have tested positive and 27 have died uh, from from prison. So it so it has affected this population for sure, as you as you can imagine. So uh, I, we did put the the link on the web, uh, which has very specific data for that question. Thank you, Juan. That's those are great data. And again, you know, knowing that you can have very specific public health interventions, just like you would in a nursing home. And I, I think we need to do that. Obviously, great. Uh, the next. Uh, Question coming from Ken Spiegelman, primary care challenge. I have spoken to too many parents who have received COVID vaccinations themselves, but will not vaccinate their children because they're not very they're not very concerned serious effects of COVID nineteen on their kids, especially five to eleven year olds. Comment. I, you know, I think Ken, um, it's a new vaccine, and parents are going to be understandably, especially since the politicization of all of this. Uh, and and you see in what they what the various information flows coming into them, much of it incorrect. They're going to be skittish. Our job is to share the facts with them, to share with them. We did see a lot of kids in the hospital, and we are seeing long haulers, and we are seeing Missy, and we believe vaccination will protect against that and live by example. I mean, my grandkids will be immunized, and and I think it's the best you're going to be able to do in the situation. And now I will also say that primary care pediatrics and primary care providers, whether it's family medicine, nursing, are critical links because that's where most parents get their immunizations for children. They don't get them at the CVS. And I wouldn't take my three-year-old grandson to a CVS. I take them to the primary care pediatrician. So as trust builds in the vaccine and they get the vaccine, my hope is we push DPH hard to make sure we can get this vaccine to primary care practices. It will take on. Uh, much like other vaccines have taken time to come on. You can think of influenza for many years, we really didn't give it to kids and now we do. So I'm optimistic over time uh, that it will take on and, and we shouldn't be uh, disappointed if many parents are watching, but share the facts and let's get the vaccines into our primary care clinics where people trust the interface with their primary care practitioner. And I, I believe ultimately will be successful, but I don't think we should mandate it. I think this is an incremental and we will get there over time, in my opinion. 
John, uh, to those who were boosted five months ago, like, like many of us, uh, do we need to be concerned about levels of protection now? Yeah, you know, it's a fantastic question, and it's hitting home for me. I was uh, boosted in September. I go in the clinical service next Monday, uh, uh, two weeks, and so, and I'm five or six months out. It came up the Connecticut Hospital Association meeting yesterday, and I don't, we don't know the answer. Um, we do know that after three or four months, there are data showing very good titer still post-booster. That's as much as was released by the companies. So I don't know what five, six months and when we need to get reboosted or whether we're going to get reboosted with the annual boost that includes variants. Is There's some unknowns there. Uh, again, it's, it's sort of my angst about some proactive guidance from the government. It would be useful for people to begin to say, this is moving to an annual booster model. We're going to give the next booster for those who have third are going to include, I mean, just make some decisions because having it gray like this. Um, and I've gotten a lot of questions from other providers who are worried now that their immunity is waning. So it's a great question. I don't have the answer. The, the answer, uh, the data that's available is like three or four months. It's pretty good. But we don't know what's going to happen six, seven, eight, ten 10 months out. And we, we need some guidance on that and some data. And then what the next booster will be is a decision that's going to have to be made um, from the FDA and from ACIP, and that, I don't even know if they're looking at that yet. Those data should really be being presented to them shortly, in my opinion. So lots of important questions. Now, I will make the point, forget that Newsmax article, masks work, N95s work, I'm living proof of that. And so I think in PPE and careful, all the things that we've learned how to do work. So as you're worried about waiting immunity, let's just make sure that we continue our careful public health measures when we're in the office, in the ambulatory clinic or inpatient to prevent transmission of COVID. And we know what to do when we know what works. So let's stay with that for now. John, I know the uh, there was a good paper looking at vaccination um, and protection from MISC. I think it was 98% effective. Right. You seen anything with vaccination and against lung COVID if somebody got infected after vaccination? Yeah, so backing up, Juan, thank you for bringing that up. There was a recent paper, and there's some challenges with that paper, um, but early data suggesting that immunized children are at much lower risk of having MISI. And if that holds true, again, it's, it's an early paper, and, and they even admit that they have some issues in, in figuring out uh, the percent protection, but it's very promising. And so if that holds up, Again, it's, it's another uh, a tool for us to talk to parents and say, hey, look, and we're going to prevent Missy with this vaccine. And let me tell you what Missy's like. That's no pretty picture. And, and um, I haven't seen data in preventing long haul. And one of the problems is the diagnosis is so squishy. So um, these are all really important studies, Juan, that as we get into um, immunizing more and more children, really close follow-up looking at the epidemiology of any future breakthrough infections and what happens with these kids and is Missy you know, solidly prevented are gonna be critical issues for us to have those data and to show parents that this vaccine's worth giving. So, um, uh, but right now the early data from that paper suggested was highly immunization, immunized children were highly unlikely to present with Missy. And most of those with Missy were unimmunized. But remember the data was pre-Omicron. And, and so we're gonna to need to see what happens with Omicron. Maybe Omicron doesn't cause Missy, we don't know. We've seen a couple of cases. The last couple of weeks. But so I, I, we have a lot of unknowns still, but I'm optimistic, Juan, to your point that it may prevent Missy. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that it does cause Missy. We've uh, this week, we've had five individuals in the hospital with Missy. 
my colleagues in Colombia that are part of our study also this week admitted five patients with MISI. So the so Omicron is linked to MISI, unfortunately. Now, Juan, Juan, just one point about that. So I, I agree with you, probably going to be true. The challenge is, and I, I showed that graph earlier, that we had a lot of Delta all the way up to the end of December. So I want to. what I want to do is push out a few more weeks. And if we still see Missy, I totally agree. We're going to be, you know, this is definitely Omicron. But if you look at Connecticut, it was still 30% Delta, almost up to December 19th. So, um, so I, I don't know. I think you're probably right, unfortunately. But we need to push out just a few more weeks and, and see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to keep seeing it. Uh, uh, John, there are a couple of, we only have a couple of minutes. Questions about what you know. I haven't seen the, the hard data on the on the vaccine for six months to four years. Uh, dosage, potential side effects, when do you expect it? So the dosage, so first off, I haven't seen the data. And, and unfortunately, uh, there's no preprint. And I think all of us will probably get to see it uh, when the FDA puts it on their website at the end of the month, which it probably will be when the application goes in and we're gonna need to look at those data. But what we do know is a three microgram dose, it's Pfizer, and two doses is probably not protective against symptomatic infection. And a third dose is probably gonna be required. Now there's, there's the urge, should we just wait for the third dose data, which will be a couple of months, or do we go ahead and get the two dose in knowing that the third dose is gonna be required and just to prove that as an addendum? And you know it's confusing, and it's certainly confusing some parents and providers, but that's kind of where it is. So I anticipate that the three microgram dose given twice over several weeks will be approved from six months to four years, knowing that we're going to have a booster shot approved to be given uh, at some point afterwards, because those data are being generated as well. I, I haven't seen the side effect data, but if it's anything like the five year to 12 year, five to 11, they were similar to adults, actually less, and there was no myocarditis in that cohort, although we have to follow the VAERS program to confirm that, and make sure that that's correct in larger numbers immunized. So it looked pretty good from five to 11. I have not, I don't think anyone's seen the six month to, um, four years, except those who are generating it, the company and the FDA. So right now, um, uh, uh, the public has not seen that. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I, I, I just have one interesting question, and then we will have to wrap up. There's talk about a stealth variant, which isn't detectable in tests. I'm uh -huh. not sure if referring to PCR or antigen test. Any info? Yeah, I mean, you know, BA2 is detectable. That's the, the newest Omicron variant. You know, we're going to have to keep watch. Um, at the moment, again, that's why new cases to me are less relevant than hospitalizations. Our hospitalizations are dropping really fast in Connecticut. So to me, uh, whatever variants out there generating significant illness is being prevented from putting people in the hospital. So community spreads down and immunizations work. We're, that was my point about endemicity. We're going to need to be vigilant. I mean, we're going to need to keep watching strains out there, looking at the variants like we do for influenza, and then generating, in my opinion, generating our annual booster based on what's out there and, and adapting our tests. Should that become true? It shouldn't be very hard. Changing the primers and PCR be easy to get those tests working for whatever variant comes up. So we should be able, we just have to know, we should be able to, to keep ahead of that. But right now I've not seen or heard of anything in New England that's generating false negative tests and you're sick. So okay. thank you, John. Uh, 
Just a reminder for everyone, uh, you might not have seen it, but it's on the, on the link there. At 12 o'clock today, we have Dr. Jane Burns, who is really one of the world's experts in Kawasaki disease, and, and now MISC will be giving the translational seminar series. You can join. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a webcast. The title is What Missy Can Teach Us About Kawasaki Disease. It's going to be very thought-provoking. Uh, Jane is a spectacular researcher in infectious disease and clinician that has been working on Kawasaki disease since the 80s. Uh, so please go ahead and join us. I think you'll find it, uh, uh, you know, very important uh, uh, information. Uh, so again, thank you, everyone. Thank you, John, for great information, as always. Uh, all of you who joined us, uh, please let us know how we can improve these services for you. Uh, we will see you again on the 18th. I think Dr. El-Shabib uh, and, uh, and one of our cardiologists will be talking about the, the issue about the new guidelines from the AAP about COVID. I think all of you have, will be very interested in that. Um, so please join us on the 18th. Join us on this Friday today at noon and then on Tuesday again for Garm Rouse. Be well, take care, be safe.